From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Rob Fain for Jill. Not sure if you've uh, started scouring for a hotel later on in the year when Taylor Swift comes to town with her Eras Tour. Hotels for this three-day extravaganza are posting incredibly high numbers to the tune of anywhere from six to ten times their regular rate, which seems kind of awful to do, no? Especially when you're trying to sell this city. Price gouging, never a good thing. So let's get into it with Vancouver City Councilor Sarah Kirby-Young. Sarah, good afternoon. Hi, Rob. How are you doing? I am fine. And I've got some numbers here. And I'm not going to call out the hotels by name. But usual rate at this hotel, 350 when Taylor's in town, nineteen ninety nine. Another one, regular rate two forty five. This one going for twenty eight ninety nine. Sarah, what are we doing wrong here? Yeah, so the the numbers are insane, and and nobody likes to feel um, like uh, they're price gouging. Um, there is definitely supply and demand. When Taylor Swift hits town, obviously it's um, incredible uh, opportunity, and people want to be part of it. Same as with FIFA, but. Um, what we're talking about here is also really a bigger underlying issue is the fact that we have a shortage of hotel rooms in the city of Vancouver. And uh, as you probably heard, a recent study from uh, Destination Vancouver shows that in our peak summer months, when everybody wants to come and it looks beautiful outside in Vancouver, um, our demand is going to exceed supply in just two years by the summer of 2026. So we simply need more hotel rooms. Well, yeah, the solution in its broadest stroke is we need more rooms. But I've heard everything from floating hotels to, you know, maybe getting looser uh, when it comes to Airbnbs and all these different, you know, would be great scenarios. But is there one that's truly viable that we can get done, especially in time for the World Cup? Yeah, there's there's a couple of options for the World Cup. Um, a lot of the s- supply and new inventory is going to have to come after FIFA, so let's be clear. Um, but the floating hotel room uh, or floating hotel vessel is actually a viable option. It takes about two years to construct and build, so a lot less time than uh, going through a traditional building on land and all of the uh, necessary steps there. Uh, it's They have them successfully in other cities around the world, like London, um, and they're great because they don't displace any land or housing, and they're environmentally um, incredibly um, sort of progressive in terms of their leadership and respecting the marine environment. So that could be done. We have a live active application, and that could be done in time for FIFA. Um, there's another couple of options which involve some older buildings downtown that uh, are ripe for um, upgrading and renovation, and they could, with the surplus of office that we have, be converted into hotels that could be done um, with council support. So those options in time for FIFA. If those can be done for tourists, I assume they could be done for the homeless population here too as well, no? Yeah, I think it's tricky about uh, making sure that we deliver the right type of um, facilities for people um, and their services and their needs. So we saw something called the Rapid Housing Initiative, which came forward from the federal government when a number of hotels, kind of those mid price points, uh, more affordable ones were bought up by the federal government and rapidly turned into social housing. So think Granville Street, for example. Um, I think the challenge with that is that they weren't built to have supportive services, sort of medical and other things on site that we're seeing a lot of our vulnerable uh, homeless and other populations really need now um, with complex mental health challenges and other issues. Um, And they were, it was sort of done very quick, very fast without, I think, a thought to the impact on what is primarily an entertainment district, Mm. uh, not an area that has access to medical support. So I think we need to be really thoughtful. Um, around what we're converting for what purpose. 
Sarah Kirby Young is a Vancouver City Councillor joining us here on the Jill Bennett Show. Um, is there anything that the city can do to these hotels? And I'm not saying with a penalty or anything, but is there anything to do, even as simple as a phone call, like, hey, guys, I mean, you know, 10 times your regular rate. Is there any influence that the city can do or are you just, you know, buyer beware? Uh, we don't have, City of Vancouver doesn't have any powers or jurisdiction over pricing. Uh, that's not something that we're able to control and to manage, but um, we definitely have ongoing conversations with the industry. We want people to be good actors. Rates aren't going to be high demand, obviously, just like Taylor Swift tickets are themselves. The tickets are high. Uh, the rooms are going to be high, but um, we definitely don't want to be offside with other cities um, in terms of what others are charging, for sure. And, and final one for you. I'm going to switch gears really quickly. I noticed you were quoted in a recent article with uh, Vancouver is Awesome about this Vancouver bar and restaurant that had to be closed because they were letting their patrons dance. I know that's not a Vancouver City Council jurisdiction. I know that's something to do with the province, but surely we could let our patrons dance, no? Well, yeah, we no, we don't want to be footloose, uh, for sure. <laughs> I think everybody's drawing that analogy. Um, but let's level set on that one. And I love Tokador. They have a great guava spritz. I've been sat on their patio many times. Mm-hmm. But the city of Vancouver did not shut them down. It was provincial uh, liquor inspectors. And I understand that there's more going on there, that there were issues with being well over capacity, capacity almost double yeah. their capacity on New Year's Eve. And that was a life safety issue in a very old building uh, where they have had concerns previously. So I just want to be very clear that that was, uh, I think, an important thing that I don't think was a punitive action. That was really about making sure that people stay healthy and safe and alive. Um, but I do think it, there's a conversation anytime we discover an out antiquated bylaw to say, OK, is it time to modernize that one? We've recently modernized liquor regulations to equalize hours across the city because it mm-hmm. used to be that your bars could stay open later if you're in one neighborhood versus the other. Um, so we're chipping away at all these pieces. Definitely happy to look at that bylaw around dancing. People love to dance, but yep. just figure out if there's any impact on nightclubs, et cetera. But that's a different issue than what I understand Tokador had their problem with, which was being well over capacity. I'll never forget when I first bought a restaurant. It was with 12th and Granville, and we had some people in, and they started dancing, and the chef came running out saying, you got to get them to stop. I said, why? They oh, said, no. you're not allowed to <laughs> So hopefully that's a policy down the road that we could fix. But um, what an I think, engage. I think we're, we're definitely trying to you know, be more flexible with the <laughs> yes. space because we know how expensive it is in Vancouver um, for people to rent. And so you want, you know, yep. why can't you be a, a retail shop during the day and, you know, um, potentially your little cafe or something at night and, you know, have multiple uses in those spaces. So we're definitely open to looking at that. Now you're speaking my language, Sarah. Sarah, thank you for the insight and for the time. Let's do this again. Absolutely. Have a great one. Rob Fain for Jill. Hope you're doing well wherever you are. Make sure that if you uh, are heading home, try to get home a little bit early before the weather gets a little bit worse. Well, BC's minimum wage is going to increase to $17.40 per hour, and that's going to happen starting June the 1st. And you know what? That's good news, obviously. You're going to have uh, employee morale. There's going to be maybe even more productivity. That's all fine and dandy, but that is also an increased labor cost on the other side of the ledger. To talk more about this from the Surrey Board of Trade, she is the CEO, Anita Huberman. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. We got it. It's all right. There's a lot of buttons here at a radio station. We finally finally pressed the right one. Um, Let's get into this, Anita. Obviously, this is a good thing. Anytime you see the minimum wage going up helps. But uh, on the other side, how are people going to deal with these increased labor costs? Well, I think number one is, uh, you know, we as a business organization in 2007, 2008 advocated 
for the minimum wage to be increased because at the, that time we had the lowest minimum wage in the country as a province. But now what's happening, uh, move forward to 2024, is that businesses are facing a perfect storm of costs, unpredictable costs, uncertain costs. And uh, and many businesses are paying above the minimum wage, but some just cannot afford to do that. So what this means to business is that they do have to take a look at other expenses that they have uh, as part of their operational plan. Uh, but, uh, you know, what we ask government is, is there a way to let businesses know by the end of the fiscal year, many fiscal years, and on December 31st, let them know earlier about what the minimum wage is going to be. And uh, so we're heading into March this week. We know the minimum wage is going to increase in June. But um, really, it's just uh, another unexpected cost to the bottom line. I would, and as a guy that has owned a small business, I know when my costs go up, I end up uh, raising the price. I mean, that's just the simple cost of new business. So this affects the customer at the end of the day, no? Yes, I mean, that is one of the uh, decisions that an employer needs to make is are they going to pass on that additional cost to the consumer or are they going to cut within the business Um, or are they going to automate? Um, How are they going to become more efficient in order to ensure more bottom line productivity? You know, the other piece of the equation is, uh, you know, tying minimum wage increases to inflation in itself is unpredictable because uh, inflation is unpredictable in any given year. So, the, you know, really the earlier that uh, businesses know, uh, the private sector knows, uh, you know, what their minimum wage increases are going to be, uh, the better in terms of planning. Anita Hubberman is with the Surrey Board of Trade. She's the CEO joining us here on the Jill Bennett Show. Um, I'd like to take the glass half full approach here. This has been desperately needed by uh, people. People will say, well, it's only a buck an hour or two bucks an hour. But there are a number of benefits by even just adding an extra $20, $25 a day. I mean, you're talking about gas. You're talking about your transit. You're talking about maybe a lunch you can get that you used to not be able to get. I mean, there are some positives by even the slightest of increases. Yes, I mean, uh People can respend that back into the economy, their consumers, and that always helps the economy as well. Um, and as I mentioned, you know, many businesses are paying above minimum wage. Uh, but, um, you know, I think what we're looking at right now is that the BC government needs to look at the entrepreneurial spirit holistically when it comes to businesses. And so that means a comprehensive tax review, a comprehensive review of all of the red tape that businesses are facing. In this way, uh, government can also make more money, save money, and also save money for businesses. And other provinces have done a comprehensive tax review, and it has saved government money. It has elevated the entrepreneurial spirit by allowing them to reinvest into their business. So minimum wage uh, increases are, you know, one ingredient in the overall economic uh, puzzle. Uh, But uh, we need bold action to elevate the entrepreneurial spirit in British Columbia. 
And, and Anita, one last thing I want to touch on. I know there's a lot of us that have kind of encountered this at one point or another. Um, the ask for a tip within certain uh, industries seems to be just on the uprise. Are our, our small business and even big business, big business in certain regards, are they leaning too heavily on uh, our graciousness, our gratuities to try and make ends meet on their end instead of increasing pay? I mean, I think I know the answer to this, but I'd love your perspective. Well, we haven't really evaluated that part of the equation. I'm, I am myself am seeing more businesses, um, even for non-restaurant, non-hospitality uh, types of transactions, asking for tips. Yep. And and there's so tipping is, um, you know, people are saying, you know, how far can this go? And you see in markets like Europe where the tip is actually part of the price. Um, so, I mean, it's it's all up for debate on what is fair and, and what consumers are willing to spend. Yeah, I just, um, I often think sometimes it's tough in an industry where, you know, certain fields it's tough to get staff and retain staff that, uh, you know, taking your tip, which used to be the options used to be like 10, 12 or 15. Now I'm seeing tip options anywhere upwards of 25 and 30 percent, which to me just seems extraordinarily high for a purchase. And it almost offsets that cost, uh, that increase that you get from the increased wage. But uh, I was just curious to know. I know that you don't have a lot of data on it, but I was just trying to get your perspective on it. Anita, you have such great insight every time we bring you on. I really thank you for yours today. And uh, let's talk more. Absolutely. You take care. Well, last night at a Richmond Council meeting, Mayor Malcolm Brody came forward and said, uh, you know what, this situation is now closed and uh, Richmond will not seek approval for drug consumption. Uh, That site that drew a lot of ire from a lot of members in that community. Uh, I think there was a little bit of misperception in that as well. So, you know what? Let's talk to Richmond City Councilor Alexa Liu, kind enough to join us this afternoon. Alexis, how are you? Hi, Rob. How are you doing? I'm good. I think I just called you Alexis. Sorry, Alexa. That's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe Alexis is plural. Um, Let's get into this because, you know what? It's been two weeks since uh, it really hit its apex when Richmond was talking about, um, you know, the health authorities coming in with a safe injection site, the the community backlash. Uh, You voted against it in a vote of seven to two. When everything's now said and done, Malcolm Brody putting a seal on this one, was it actually a little bit of confusion more than anything? Uh, There was a bit of confusion. That being said, uh, what council was asking for was to do a feasibility study on its own. Uh, The city of Richmond doesn't necessarily have the skill set or the um, jurisdiction to do that feasibility study. So um, it could have been to the tune of about $100,000 to do a study like this. And then we would have had to then go, if we had decided that that was what we needed, then go forward to Vancouver Coastal Health. It's Vancouver Coastal Health's job to do that study. They had already told us back in July that they've been looking at the numbers. They're aware of the toxic health drug crisis, and Mm -hmm. they had no plans to give us a safe injection site. Or a safe consumption site. Were you surprised by the backlash within the community? I mean, you've got your finger of the pulse of the people of Richmond, but were you surprised at just the level and ire that they came to you with? Um, I was surprised because it was a feasibility study. That being said, you know, I talked to a journalist who read the motion twice 
to really get understand what they were reading. So people whose first language is English and whose job it is to pick this stuff apart, they had to read it a couple times to really make sure they had it right. So some people were also then relying on somebody else to read it and translate it for them. So there was confusion as to what we were asking for. And the way it was written very clearly made it sound like it was a fait accompli. Mm. So if you weren't careful of how you read it in English, you definitely were going to have trouble once you, it got into the telephone game of somebody translating and then passing the message on to you. And, and you think that's a part of the reason that the community just, you know, you you say it and other people hear it and all of a sudden you're there collectively at City Hall saying, hey, this can't happen. Um, are you surprised within your council that so many people still voted for this? I mean, you, I, there were, it was, the vote was seven to two. Did that catch you by surprise? I was surprised. I thought that, um, you know, especially when we have some councillors who are really committed to making sure that there's a lot of public engagement on things, that they were quite fixed on this. And, um, you know, some of the comments that came out, and you've heard them too, that people were misinformed. It's like, well, if there was more information to be had, it could have been put into the body of the the motion into the appendices into appendices of the motion any supporting information you want to add to the motion you have unlimited pages to back it up with mm-hmm. information so I, I also wasn't surprised at the um, backlash from the community we don't even sell pot in richmond so we have a community that really doesn't want um sort of the drugs and that kind of stuff happening here in richmond so there's definitely that we've held firm on that for so many years and then suddenly we're looking at this um and we do want to keep people safe that i think that's what was driving it and you know it it built its own momentum within council perhaps and the community answered back as to what they was important to them and and what they thought was needed or not needed. I saw this number that came out from the Canadian press of the more than 2,500 people who died of toxic drugs in BC last year, only 26 were from Richmond. I mean, that number right there says, wow, maybe there isn't the problems in Richmond that uh, um, perhaps some may think. But that said, I'm very curious, Alexa, to know what this whole experience was uh, meant to other jurisdictions around the Lower Mainland, because if you look at it just broad stroked, here was this initiative that, you know, was a safe injection site. The crowd had the city, the community of Richmond had an uproar and all of a sudden there was an about face. Does this set a precedent maybe to some of these other jurisdictions that says, wow, if we do what the people in Richmond did, maybe the safe injection site won't come here either? Maybe. I think each community is different, right? When you have far more people um, dying in other communities, that's what they need, then they should get that, right? If we have different needs in Richmond, then that's what we need. Every community has got their bundle of healthcare dollars and how that's spent to look after that community has to make sense for that community. And so our bundle of healthcare dollars, perhaps we need different things like, uh, you know, a diabetes clinics or things like that for people to manage those things. And different communities need other things. And, um, and definitely not to poo-poo the people that have passed away in Richmond. Mm-hmm. It is heartbreaking. Half of those people were either in homes, in private residences, or in industrial spaces. So they were at work, they were at home. So they weren't necessarily going to, you know, travel across Richmond and go to the, a safe consumption site anyway. They may have, but um, it it wasn't necessarily going to be serving a huge number of people in Richmond either. 
and yeah. could our could our dollars be spent differently better um you know should we be actually demanding or really pushing for treatment beds or something else and i know earlier this in the fall i we met with minister whiteside and i asked her about you know is there perhaps a new drug prevention program that we could pilot here in Richmond. We could help the provincial government pilot it. Currently, we offer the DARE program, the Drug Abuse Resistance Education, to our kids here in Richmond. The city pays for it and the the schools deliver it in conjunction with some community partners. Is there a better program that we could be running? What else could we be doing? And then the other thing that I did the other day is I put forward a referral to staff to look at the uh, possibility to give developers uh, a density bonus if they produce um, basically plug-and-play spaces for doctors to open up hmm. doctor's offices. So to open up a doctor's office, each exam room needs its own um, hand wash station, various things that it needs. To kit out a space in the second place is a lot more expensive than doing it in the first place. So if we can work with developers, which is what our side of the we're actually supposed to do. So we as city councillors, we're planning permits, sewers and sidewalks. That's what we do. So if we can get developers to build what we need to attract more doctors so that everyone has a primary care physician in Richmond, maybe that'll actually help curb some of what's happening to people and and pushing them towards drugs and um, other mental health issues that they're having. If we can catch them sooner, look after them better before they fall through the cracks, maybe we'll have better outcomes. You know what? I don't know if I could disagree with you on that. Alexa, thank you for this conversation. I do appreciate it. I know we can finally put a bottle, uh, a cap on this bottle, but I uh, just wanted to get your thoughts on it. And thank you for making time for me today. Thanks for having me, Rob. Rob Fain for Jill, 47 minutes after one o'clock. It is starting to cloud over in a big, big way here in the lower mainland. Please drive safe if you're out on the roads. Well, uh, we heard from city councillor in Richmond, Alexa Liu, about some of the uh, challenges that they faced over there. Uh, Mayor Malcolm Brody putting the uh, kibosh officially on all talks surrounding these uh, safe injection opportunities that they had out there. Wanted to get this from the other side. Guy Felicella is a harm reduction expert, kind enough to join me. Guy, good afternoon. Hey, Rob. Thanks for having me. No problem. So basically over the last couple of weeks, I'm sure you've read this or heard this in the news. The fact is uh, that this story came out that they were looking at Richmond as a possible safe injection opportunity. Uh, The people of Richmond in large numbers came out and said, "Uh uh-uh, not here. And eventually there was an about face by the community. I I guess my first question to you, Guy, with regards to that whole scenario is what does this do for the stigma of a safe injection site now that we've seen the people of Richmond essentially win this round? Well, I, I mean, I think with the, I applaud the city of Richmond and the mayor and the city councillors for, you know, looking at the option of trying to reduce uh, deaths in their community. I mean, most municipalities don't even try because of similar backlash. However, um, with all the, the, the backlash, this wasn't something that they were bringing to uh, Richmond, this was something that they were looking at. So um, essentially what they were trying to do is look for ways to better support people who are struggling in the community of Richmond. Now, in regards to um, why it, the Richmond doesn't need a standalone site is just because, you know, Vancouver Coastal Health will look at communities with the highest um, risk of deaths of overdose that are continuous and then put facilities 
in those areas where they're needed, such as the downtown Vancouver area. Um, that doesn't mean that Richmond um, is kiboshed in any way, shape, or form. Um, what it means is that there's other alternatives to look at best supporting uh, people who are uh, struggling in Richmond with substance use. And that could be an episodic uh, OPS, which is basically education for substance users of where to go when they are using these substances um, to not use alone or to have somebody watch over them. And that could be done at uh, one of the many sites that are in bank, uh, uh, Richmond already. So there's those options. Obviously, I think, you know, I understand communities that have fear around these sites, but I think you have to educate yourself or, you know, look to have some answers um, where they're not so fear-based because, you know, we have people who are struggling in our communities. And the best way to often build those connections is through supportive services of harm reduction services in the hopes that maybe possibility of one day them accessing a treatment service. Um, you know, so we do have, you know, what, what is it? 26 people dying uh, in Richmond last year. Mm-hmm. Guy, not to cut you off, I, I just want to know, because I think the challenge that I see, and this is a guy that, you know, pops into the media here and there, is the optics of a safe injection site. We see it on the news. We hear about it on the news. The uh, users spilling out onto the street or setting up within a block's radius. And I think this is what a lot of the people in these neighborhoods fear, is that that's going to happen in their community. Is there any anywhere, be it in Canada or somewhere abroad, that does safe injection sites well, that maybe could become the template or the standard for what we could, you know, strive to become so that communities don't look at that and say, I don't want anything to do with that? Well, I think they all do uh, well in the sense that they save lives. Um, And it's also noted that it doesn't increase, you know, crime in their area. You already have substance users in your area. I think there could be additional add-ons to OPSs as well, where there's some more funding towards, you know, outreach components where um, people are, you know, going on to the street or saying to people who are um, using in the communities, like, hey, you can't, you know, can you come to the OPS? We have one here for you, you know, using here. I, I think there's ways to improve um, uh, those those types of issues that we're dealing with in our society. Um, but essentially what they, what they do do is, you know, you're not going to, I know the conservatives, BC conservatives threw in a, you know, a statement saying that people are going to jump on the sky train and come to Richmond and Richmond would now turn into the downtown mm. uh, east side. This is just so false. And it's sad to see these political parties say things that are fear-based and this is what the public reacts to. Um, that's why we need to do actual more education sessions on what happens inside these sites. And if you look at a good model, I mean, for the standalone site at Insight in the downtown east side, I mean, it's phenomenal. I mean, it's a different uh, demographic of area. But Richmond could um, definitely um, use some more education sessions for their public as well so that they have a better understanding that, you know, hey, these sites are people are going to spill out into the middle of the street and start you know, hanging around, uh, you know, I think we can do better at that part for sure. Guy, I really appreciate your insight. Um, you always get straight to the point. You speak from the heart and, uh, I always love having you on the show. Thank you for your thoughts on this and let's speak more. Thanks Rob. Have a great day. 
Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.